Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Our speaker tonight is Carlo Ratti, who has suggested a title for his lecture, uh, the question, do you live in, sens in a sensible city? In his lecture, um, Carlo Ratti will examine the increasing deployment of sensors and handheld electronics in the last years, and how this fact is allowing a new approach to the study of the built environment. His lecture will also explore the radical transformation in the ways we describe and understand cities alongside the tools we use to design them and the subsequent impact on their physical structure. Now let me introduce you to, to our speaker. Architect and civil engineer Carlo Ratti is head of New York and Torino-based design office Carlo Ratti Associati and professor at the MIT, where he also directs the Sensible City Lab. As one of the leading voices of his generation in the field of new technologies and urban life, his work has been exhibited in several venues worldwide, including the Venice Biennale, <coughs> sorry, as part of the Renkulhas um, curated uh, edition, the MoMA in New York, and the Science Museum here in London. Two of his projects, the Digital Water Pavilion and the Copenhagen Wheel, were acknowledged by Time Magazine as best inventions of the year. He has also been included in Wire Magazine's Smart List 50 People Who Will Change the World. He's currently serving as co-chair of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Cities and Urbanization, and as a special advisor on urban innovation to the European Commission. Please give a warm welcome to Carlo Ratti. Thank you. Thank you, Gonzalo. Um, well, I want to talk about, can we live on Mars? So, no, anyway, I'll, I'll talk to you about, uh, about sensible cities. Um, well, um, I'll share with you some of the work we're doing both at uh, at MIT, a sensible city lab, and also in our design office. But let me tell you first um, why we look at cities. You know, just four numbers about cities, 250, 75, and 80. Cities are only 2% of the crust of the planet, but they are 50%, actually a bit over 50% of the population, 75% of energy consumption, 80% of CO2 emissions. So if we actually can do something to make our cities a bit more sustainable, the impact at a global scale can be, can be huge. And well, um, what, uh, what can we do at the urban scale? Uh, well, we think there's a lot of interesting uh, experiments we can do today thanks to, to new technologies. But let me tell you about that a bit more in detail. Now, if you look at the beginning of the digital revolution, people thought that actually our lives would become increasingly virtual, uh, a little bit like this. In uh, 1995, the same year when uh, Nicolas Negroponte wrote Being Digital, actually Gilder was thinking that cities one day would disappear. He wrote, we are headed for the dead of cities, cities are leftover baggage from the industrial era. Well, what does this tell you? The first thing it tells you is never make predictions about the future, because no prediction could have been more wrong than this one. We know the cities have been thriving over the past few decades. That's a picture from Tianjin in China. China this century might actually build more urban fabric than all of humanity ever built. And we know that, you know, Today is around 50% of the world's population is in cities, but this number might swell, to, might swell to 5 billion by 2030. So what has happened is that the digital hasn't really killed uh, the need for physical space like Gilder and many other thoughts at the beginning. Uh, 19, in, in the 90s also, Cain Cross wrote a book called The Death of Distance, and all that, you know, 
implying that, that physical space will be less and less important. Well, that's not what happened. But at the same time, digital and physical kind of recombining. It are providing a lot of very exciting new opportunities to really better understand how our cities work and also how we could, uh, could design them in a, in a different way. So um, <clears throat> this is what I want to, uh, uh, to, to share with you tonight is some of the work we're doing both at Sensible City Lab in Boston and Singapore and some in our design office and some of the startups that came out of, uh, of them. And I try to frame this in the same ways, you know, with the same questions that I've, I've heard uh, from many mayors uh, around the world. You know, the first one is, you know, how is mobility going to change? Then, you know, what about uh, office spaces? We know the way we live and work today is, uh, is being radically changed by digital technologies. So, you know, how is uh, all, all of that urban fabric that we develop for offices going to change? Uh, what about retail? Uh, we know that retail is, uh, is uh, changing all over the world. In the United States, uh, a lot of uh, <clears throat> shopping malls are, are closing down. So how is that going to change? And ultimately, you know, what type of urban experiences we can, we can create in cities uh, today? So I want to start with, uh, with mobility. And I will mix tonight some of the research projects we're doing at, uh, at our lab, also with some design projects we're doing with, uh, with our office. <clears throat> and I wanted to start with one of the oldest projects we did. Um, this was at the Venice Biennale back in 2006, over 10 years ago. And uh, there, it was actually the Venice Biennale <coughs> curated by Ricky Burdett and also Richard Sennett, who's sitting there in, uh, in, the, in the room. And uh, at the Venice Biennale, we had um, a pavilion where we, we work on real-time data. That was the first time ever that we actually got a lot of cell phone data uh, from uh, uh, a big city, and we use it in order to capture in real time what is going on in, in the city. So what we were doing, um, we were collecting data. This was Venice Biennale, so it was in Venice. But we were collecting data from the city of Rome in Italy. Then that data would be sent to uh, servers we set up at MIT, where we would use artificial intelligence and visualization to make sense of the data. And then we would send the data back to Italy and show it at the, at the Biennale. Now, um, I'll show you, just to give you a sense of, uh, of the project, I'll show you something uh, that happened that summer. It was a special event. It was uh, the, summer, the, the Soccer World Cup in 2006. And it happened actually that Italy won the, the Soccer World Cup. So let me show you what happened <clears throat> in this case by analyzing all the cell phone data from the city of Rome. You see Rome, the Colosseum, the river. Um, during the special days, you see the morning, people moving here and there, and uh, you know, in the city, you see all the information collected from the cell phone network. That's before the match in the afternoon. The match begins, silence. Nobody speaks anymore. <laughs> France scores, Italy scores. Half time, people make a call in, you know, in the middle. And then end of normal time, first overtime, second overtime, headbutt by Zidane in a moment. And finally, <laughs> Italy wins. <laughs> <laughs> and then that night, everybody went to celebrate in the city center here. <clears throat> and then the following day, again, you know, the winning team went to meet the prime minister in the city center, so you see another big peak. And, and by the end of the day, actually, everybody went to a place called Circo Massimo, where since Roman times, uh, you know, Romans go and celebrate, and you see here a peak at the end of the day uh, in this part of town. So really, and, and you know, the, the, this was the, the first example, and you know, that hadn't been done at this scale, um, but of how we can use real-time data from the city. That's another example. Uh, this is something we had at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York, done by Pedro Cruz. That's Lisbon, captured using billions and billions of data points uh, collected from the taxi network. And again, you know, we couldn't understand the city like this 
just 10 or 20 years ago. Actually, it's very interesting you use the Cedric Price quote at the beginning. Uh, you know, Cedric Price uh, is uh, the one who said, you know, technology is a solution, technology is the answer, but what is the question? And, you know, Cedric Price, in a lot of his writing, was thinking about a city where we get this type of real-time information, where we get feedback loops, cybernetics between us and the environment. Well, today, for the first time, some of the old dreams of Price and many others, Stafford Beard here in the UK and so on, are, are finally becoming possible. Now, when you get all this data, then you can analyze it, and you can use mathematics to analyze it. So that's exactly the same data in New York. What you see here, every dot is a taxi pickup or drop-off. Uh, what you see here is JFK Airport, and then uh, if you landed in New York, you were probably one of the little dots over there. If you zoom out, you see JFK over here, and you see Manhattan and, and all of the boroughs. Now, incidentally, a little story about this data. This, this is data that was uh, made accessible by Mike Bloomberg, former mayor of New York. And uh, Mike Bloomberg really uh, has always had a big uh, interest in data. You know, his whole company deals with data. Uh, Bloomberg is a company. Uh, when he was mayor in New York, he had a little sign in his office. Uh, and the sign went, uh, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. And as mayor in New York, he actually made a lot of data accessible to, to people, uh, to researchers, for instance. So what we did here, we got all this data, and then we asked ourselves the following question. Um, how many of those trips could be shared? So if you look at two points in Manhattan, between those two points, you got hundreds of thousands of trips connecting them in the course of the year. How many of those trips could be shared by people? Today, you know, we like to share many things, apartments on Airbnb, couches on couch surfing platform. So how much mobility could be shared in, in New York? Well, if you want to answer that question mathematically, um, you cannot do it with traditional mathematics. Sometimes we say big data also requires big math or new math, simply because there's too much data to, to make sense of it. So what we did, we, we developed a system called shareability networks. Uh, you see them here. They're network that tell you, networks that tell you how many trips could be shared. And, uh, and then we analyze them. And what we discovered was quite interesting is that um, in New York, you could take everybody to destination when they need to be there, give or take a couple of minutes, but with 40% less vehicles than, uh, than what you have today. Now, two interesting things. That's a piece of research we are still working on. I'll show you some, some results from a few, few weeks ago. Um, but the first results came out um, a few years ago and uh, actually came to the attention of Uber and since then, we started a large collaboration with Uber, and uh, as you might know, Uber Pool uh, does exactly that. Allow two people going more or less in the same direction to share a trip. Now, the other thing that happened is, is inter quite interesting, is that when, when the paper was published, um, the New York Times did a review of the paper, and uh, you know, the, 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 the journalist said, well, you know, this is interesting research, but you know what? In New York, no New Yorker would want to share anything else with any other New Yorker let alone a car. Well, it turns out that that's not the case. And now that we're working with Uber and using a lot of Uber pool data uh, to analyze, um, Uber pool has been a big success, a huge success all over the world. In San Francisco, over 50% of all trips every day happen by Uber pool, which means you know you got instead of having two cars, you got just one car on the road, which means uh, less congestion, less uh, energy consumption, less pollution uh, in the city. Uh, the same thing that happens in San Francisco, New York, also. Uh, can happen in most other cities. That's uh, something from a few months ago where we looked at uh, global shareability patterns. If you go on the website, you see London and many other cities. And uh, <clears throat> so this shows you how, you know, 
We can collect data from the city we didn't have before, but then the same data, if we analyze it, can actually suggest new ways to, to use the city or run part of the urban infrastructure. Now, beyond sharing trips, something else is hap interesting is happening in mobility is that our cars are becoming a little bit like that. And what you see here is, uh, is a list, a graph showing you all of the sensors included in a car today. Every car is like a moving computer, a computer on wheels, and has thousands and thousands of sensors collecting everything about the city, about the driver, about the car itself. There's actually real data from Volkswagen showing a, a, an average car and all the sensors inside it. And then, you know, if you add two additional sensors, like the two little ears that you see there, um, they're a little bit like the human eye. They allow you to do a three-dimensional scan of the city. Those were two LiDAR sensors. And then you feed all of this into an artificial intelligence system, and the car drives itself. And this is not something, you know, in the distant future. This is something about today. You know, as we speak, there's uh, thousands of cars being tested all over the world. Uh, we've, been, uh, we've been working with the government of Singapore to do the largest deployment ever in a city of, of self-driving cars. And when you got a self-driving car, everything changes again. Because today the car is used on average 5% of the time. 95% of the time, not only it's not used, but actually it uses valuable space in our cities. And it's parked somewhere. So with a self-driving car, that's going to change because the car can give you a lift in the morning when you go to the office, and then can give a lift to somebody else in your family or to anybody else in the city. So what you're doing, you're creating a new system in between public and private transportation. When everything will be self-driving, then a few years from now, other things might change, such as this. We're all familiar with this. That's a well-known traffic light. And traffic lights appeared on our roads when actually cars arrived on our roads. But if you've got an intelligence system where every car knows where it is and where all the other cars are, then you need to stop anymore. You can keep on going, just avoiding collisions. A little bit like this. Don't try it yet. <laughs> I, gave a, I gave a presentation in Naples, and they told me, so what's new here? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm, Ita I'm Italian, so I can make such jokes. But I need to tell you, I got corroborating evidence about this, which is a former Italian minister who said, in Milan, traffic lights are instructions. <laughs> In Rome, there are suggestions. In Naples, there are Christmas decorations. <laughs> so again, when you look at this, um, um, it's um, something quite interesting from a mathematical point of view. If you look at the intersection, it's very simple. You know, you've got two roads, the basic intersections like this. But when you look at all the trajectories, it can become quite complex. So that's a, a recent piece of research we did. Um, <clears throat> where we actually looked at uh, mathematically modeling uh, in a generalized way an intersection. What you see here is an intersection in Singapore. So to the left and to the right, the same number of cars arrive to the intersection. But actually to the left, it's managed using the most sophisticated traffic light system we have today. And to the right, it's managed using a slot-based system similar to what you have in, uh, in airports. You know, the interesting thing is, and look at the differences uh, between delay per car and cars waiting to the left and to the right. Now, the other interesting thing is that usually the intersection is the bottleneck for um, uh, most traffic networks. At the intersection, you've got two competing flows fighting for, for the same real estate. So actually, if you can fix the intersection, then the benefits are going to trickle down across the whole, uh, the whole network. 
so, you know, this is mostly res the research we're doing at the lab. Uh, I'll show you in a moment some of the possible consequences for, for architecture and planning. <clears throat> but um, uh, I wanted to say uh, also, in a, you know, this is there some of the interesting problems that we can tackle today, thanks to data, but we couldn't do just a few years ago. And actually, in a few weeks, there's a new paper coming out in, uh, in Nature uh, that we did, uh, uh, where we actually looked at a, a similar problem, again, using similar data, which is about um, you know, the, the minimum fleet you need in a city and, uh, you know, how big is that fleet given the mobility, say, of London, Milan, New York, or other. Now, um, what, is, what could be the impact on, on architecture? Um, well, um, I'll show you just one example. It's a building we, we just uh, broke ground the last week in Singapore. It's a building we designed with, uh, with BIG. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a skyscraper with a tropical forest in, in the middle. But the key thing is, uh, is that, you know, today we had to do, provide a lot of parking. And so we talked a lot to the, in Singapore to the URA, is, uh, you know, the land planning uh, uh, agency. And, um, and what, we, what we came up with was the, the idea of, you know, today we need parking, yes, so we need a lot of space for that, but we want to do it in a way that would be flexible tomorrow if we need less parking. So what we did was quite simple. We, we increased the distance between the floors, we moved the ramps outside, and from the beginning, we made the space something transformable, so they can actually be reused for other things over, over time. And I think that's uh, something quite important, is that you know, the city we built today is a city that will last for 50 or 100 years. But actually, the software of the city, or the mobility of the city, you know, all, the, all, all of this is going to change very, very quickly. You know, we know about self-driving within 10 years, everybody's expecting a revolution in mobility. So one of the important things I believe we need to, to tackle as, uh, as planner, architects, and, and designers, is how can we actually future-proof what we build today? How can we make it uh, viable under different scenarios uh, in the city? Um, other examples of mobility, um, there's a project we started around a year ago in Amsterdam. You know, Amsterdam is a beautiful city, uh, and um, um, you see here a map of Amsterdam, but as you all know, it's a city where the city center, the historical part, is uh, mostly made of water. And so we started thinking with, uh, with the mayor about, you know, what could we do? The mayor was, was very keen about experimenting with new mobility in the city. And so we came up with the idea of, you know, thinking, well, what about uh, self-driving boats? Um, we call them robots. So what can you do with a robot? Um, well, you can use the robot for moving parcels around uh, like this, for moving people around like this. You can use it to sense the air quality, the water quality as a sensing platform for the city. But also you can use them almost as a as a responsive digital architecture system. So imagine you can do a bridge when you need it, uh, or you can do a floating stage in the case of a concert, you've got an emergency, and you can, you can use it almost like floating pixels that you can assemble in order to do something in the city. Which, of course, is, uh, is nothing new. If you look at this, that's what Venice has been doing for a long time. It's uh, during the Festa del Redentore, all the gondolas come together to make a bridge. But I think that's, that's some kind of, going back to your question at the beginning, the, the Cedric Price question about technology, you know, I think technology, the most interesting technology, is not the one that has asked ask new questions, but is when, you know, when it helps us to, to address, to answer old questions, or things we always wanted to do, or we, we've always done, but to do it in a, in a new way. I'll show you briefly about some of the things we're doing with this project. So the first thing we're trying to do is design the boats a bit like drones. The great success of drones is that you know, they're very easy to build. You put four engines, and, um, <clears throat> and then what you're doing is uh, you, know, you control them very easily. 
just, you know, it's very easy to build, very, they're very easy to build, very easy to control. Now, what we're trying to do with the, with the boats is something similar. We try with engines like this, orthogonal, or with four water jets like this. Uh, here's the first uh, boat. Um, it's a scale model. It's around one to four. And you'll see it here in Amsterdam, tested in the, on the canals quite recently. Um, it's quite small, but you see how controllable it is. You see it again here. You can also move laterally. You know, we told the mayor, you know, even if this doesn't work, it uh, doesn't matter, we'll open a toy company because everybody seems to have so much fun playing with this on the, on the canals. Um, the final thing I want to tell you about mobility is something about this and, uh, you know, about drones. And um, a lot of people think that actually the city of the future would be filled with these type of things. Um, I don't think that's the case. And the reason I don't think it's the case is just physics. Um, if you think about physics, um, in order to keep a lot of weight up in the air, you need a lot of energy, you need to move a lot of air downwards, and you generate a lot of noise. And it's just you know, physics. It's very dif difficult to go against it, especially, I mean, we, can, we might be able to control in the future the noise, but about the, the flow of air underneath, it's, uh, it's very, you, know, you cannot escape it. And uh, if you think about what's happening in New York, in lower Manhattan, there's a helipad where there's a few tens of flights per hour taking off, and everybody's complaining. If you just you know, Google, you find the whole neighborhood, the whole, the whole city. Now, if you want to have a small impact on the mobility in New York, you don't need tens of flights per hour. You need tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, uh, of flights. So I don't think this is a solution for mobility in a large city, in a dense city. Could be the solution for, uh, for uh, you know, uh, places where there's no infrastructure, such as Af Africa. Could be a solution for sensing the city, for emergency, for fun. Uh, that's a project we'll open uh, in a few weeks. Uh, it's about, you know, collaborative graffiti done with drones in, in the city. So the drones go around, they can spray paint uh, wherever you want, and citizens can control it. Um, or in the next project, um, for addressing a very crucial issue on the MIT campus. And the MIT campus in Boston, for those of you who've been in Cambridge, um, is very messy. So it's plenty of buildings. Every building has a number. You know, that you go there, they tell you, go to building 32 hyphen 230, you know, and a lot of people get lost. So we did this project in order to help them, and in particular, to help Harvard students. All right, <clears throat> so that, that was about, you know, about mobility. Um, the other thing I want to share with you is about, you know, what about our way of working? And, you know, that's, uh, as we all know, that's changing very, very rapidly. Um, that's a recent uh, op-ed I did for, for the Harvard Business Review, um, <clears throat> where, you know, they gave a title, if work is digital, why do we still go to the office? And you know, I think there's certainly still a reason to go to the office. It's the same reason we are here tonight. You know, we like to be exchange ideas with other people, to be with other people. But at the same time, it's a different reason than what it was a few years ago. And in order to look at that, I just wanted to start from the very basic uh, components of a city. If you look at this, that's Le Corbusier, one of the most celebrated architects of the, the 20th century. And Le Corbusier, in 1931, together with uh, the CM group, um, wrote the Charda 10, where you know, his key principle was, their key principle was, we should separate every function in the city. So the four keys to urban planning are the four functions of the city, dwelling, work, recreation, and transportation. But if you do that, what you end up with is, what you see there to the left, you know, a city which is really a city where you need to build three different cities, each of them used just part of the time, and then you create a lot of flows between them in the course of the year. So it's no surprise since the 1950s and 60s and 70s, many people across the planet, including 
Jane Jacobs in the United States, thought about mixed-use developments. How can you combine different functions in the same neighborhoods? But we believe that today things are changing again. And the reason for that is the increased flexibility we have in our lives. We can you know, take our laptop and go and work anywhere. And so that allows us to, to use space over time in a different way, something that might redefine the notion of private and public space in the very structure of our buildings. Now, in order to look at this, again, in a more detailed way, let me share some data from the MIT campus again. So what you see here is, uh, is MIT. Uh, that's Boston downtown. By the way, I... Boston is a very green city, but this picture is from, from the winter, so it looks, uh, you know, like post-nuke. Um, and uh, you got Boston, you got MIT, like a small city inside the city. Harvard, don't bother, I'm there. And uh, um, MIT was, uh, was one of the first universities to be, you know, has always been kind of a, a test bed or a living lab, a place, you know, where to try new technology. So in the early 2000s, it was one of the first campuses to be totally covered by Wi-Fi. And so we started seeing a very big change in the way people live and work. People used to work, as you see there, to the left, and now tend to work, as you see there, to the right. Now, I need to tell you, the two images there are a bit extreme. Uh, I looked for the most uh, depressing computer room I could find, you know, no daylight and so on. And to the right, you see a beautiful sunny day. I need to tell you, a couple of weeks ago, when it was minus 20 Celsius, it was not that fun. But it gives you a sense of the changes. And the same changes that we are seeing all over the world. People used to work like this. Uh, that's actually Jacques Tati making fun of cubicles in uh, playtime. And now, now we tend to work like this. So why, what is the difference? The difference is simply technology that allows us to work in a more flexible way. It's simply the fact that uh, before we had to execute tasks in uh, places such as this one. And so, but those tasks today probably have been uh, delegated to artificial intelligence, to robotics, to other things. So, so the key reason to work together is really human interaction. And so that's why we want spaces such as, such as this one. But so if technology is responsible for the changes, um, what about measuring and monitoring technology to see what is going on? So we, we took all the data from the MIT network, and we went to see this Wi-Fi network, and we went to see how different spaces are used in the course of the day. So what you see here through the Wi-Fi network, you see where people are in the morning, you see occupancy. So where people are, how they move through the campus, you know, how they, they wake up in the dorms and move to the center of the campus. You know, you see the whole day at MIT and the bubble tells you how many people you have in that building, in that room. If you aggregate it <clears throat> across the whole campus, what you get is like the curve at the top. So you see here people get into campus at 9 a.m. on a Monday, that's a Monday. Um, a few people leaving at 5 p.m., not that many. Most people keep on working till late at night. And then even in the middle of the night, you got quite a lot of activity on campus. And the same happens on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday. Not on Friday, like all over the world, activity slips away quickly on a, on a Friday afternoon. In Saturday and Sunday, are almost like two normal days. You know, if you look at this, it, you remove the nine to five people. They're almost like two normal days. So it's something quite interesting. Every, every Sunday night, there's a little dent um, that you see there. And the real event is between 9 and 10 p.m. is that when you say, you know, oh my God, tomorrow is Monday again. And you remember all the things you haven't finished before the beginning of, uh, of the new week. So if you look at this, that was the aggregated activity across the whole campus. But you can do this for every room on campus. And you get the signature over time. And, you know, this is almost the dream that many architects had in the past. Not only Cedric Price and many of the radicals of the 20th century, but if you go back to Cerda, uh, the father of modern Barcelona in the 19th century, when he writes his Summa about Barcelona, there's a very interesting paragraph where he says, you know, he says, I hope that one day 
this type of data will help us to turn city planning almost into a science. So this idea of having this type of data has been something that <clears throat> you know, architects, planners, engineers uh, have been dreaming for a long time. It's about occupancy, it's about how people use the things we, we design. How is the interaction between us and the world of the artificial around ourselves? And so when you get this, today for the first time we start to be able to measure that. And uh, you can see it here for every room. You can look, you can analyze it. That's uh, Fourier transform to look at the frequencies. You can look clustering. And if you do the clusters, you see something quite interesting, which is similar to what I was saying before. Like a few years ago, probably <clears throat> this map would have been a different map. A map where every dot would be a very specific color and every function would be different. A little bit like in the Corbusier's map. But if you look at what's happening today, is this kind of mixing. The use of the same spaces over time in a different way. Now, the interesting thing is that this tells you human interaction, physical interaction on campus. But if you think about what is a university or, or what is a great company, you know, it's nothing else than, uh, than humans coming together in physical space, coming together in digital space, and trying to achieve something together, making sure that the total is more than the sum of the individual parts. And today, for the first time, we're able to, to measure all three components. Now, what I'm show you showing you now <clears throat> this is what it was published, so you find it on our website. But what I'm going to show you now is not, not published yet, but basically we started looking here at physical interaction. Then you can look at the, what we produce. And if we are in a university, what we produce is papers and patents, primarily. So you can measure that. You can look at the communities producing papers and patents, and you can look at the digital interaction between people. So this is something we're still working on, but we think there's a, there's a lot of very interesting questions to be asked about uh, <clears throat> really how can we create spaces that promote digital and physical interaction and ultimately that allow us to achieve more when we, when we are together. Um, again, this is the research we're doing, this some of the work we're using in our design office. Uh, that's one of the largest co-working spaces in Southern Europe we designed last year. Um, that's a place in, uh, in the US. Uh, here, the, so it's, uh, here the weather is very nice, so what you, you have the, the outdoor courtyards become, become a space for interaction. And, uh, and when you got all the occupants in real time, you can also do other things, like architecture will respond seamlessly to people. In this building that was just completed a few weeks ago, a few months now, um, <clears throat> then the whole building responds to occupants in different ways, including by you know, lighting, heating, and cooling, following people around, allowing you to have your bubble that follows you, you through the building in a way that the building responds exactly to what, you, what is happening inside. And a bit like your computer that goes on standby when nobody's there, it will automatically go on standby when it's, uh, it's not used. So I want to tell you a bit more about this building. Uh, <clears throat> this was one of the first reviews a few weeks ago you know, about the thermostat wars. But beyond that, I want to tell you a bit the story of the, the project. <clears throat> the project is in Italy. It's in the city of Turin, and it's actually the foundation, the so-called Agnelli Foundation. Um, the Agnelli family is a controlling shareholder behind uh, Fiat Chrysler, that includes uh, uh, Jeep and uh, uh, Ferrari, and uh, also I believe they are one of the controlling shareholders behind The, the Economist. And, uh, and this is their family foundation. And this building actually in Italy is a listed building and has uh, <clears throat> a lot of history because it's where Fiat was started. So it became one of the largest conglomerate, Italian conglomerates in the 20th century, but it started in this small house. And you know, that's, uh, uh, where the, you know, the, some, some of the initial activities took place over 100 years ago. And then in the 1950s, um, a bunch of architects went to the United States to, to extend it. And um, <clears throat> went to the United States to look at state-of-the-art offices and to extend the building. 
uh, this is also listed. It was an extension uh, done in the 50s. And you know, when they went to look, to look at state-of-the-art offices, they came back, uh, did, uh, did this, and inside it looked like this, which is exactly what I showed before about you know, the cubicles and different rooms totally separated. So um, our work was to see how can we turn this into something that, that works better with today's way of living and, uh, and working. And so the first thing was about opening this to the city, so connecting it more to the city, connecting it more between different levels. Every level was totally separated, but how can we actually create more porosity inside the building? And also connecting to nature. You know, um, nature, as humans, we've been, we've been living with nature for thousands of years. And only in the past few hundred years, we actually locked ourselves into kind of buildings that look like fish tanks. And, and today, we, we can actually bring back nature in different ways in, in our cities. I'll tell you more, more about that uh, in a moment. So this is a picture from a, a recent picture. There's no furniture yet, but that's actually the orchard we did next to the building. Our idea is that this could work a little bit like the orchard in Cambridge. For those of you who have been in this beautiful place, you know, take a book or your computer and go and work at, uh, in Grantchester next to, to Cambridge. Um, you see the offices that ex expand, extend from the inside to the outside. So you see the, the building inside, and the outside becomes a place for a meeting, for a conference, uh, uh, for working on your laptop, and so on. Uh, what I showed you before, how the building responds in real time to occupancy, heating, lighting, and cooling that follow people inside. Uh, this starts to be, to be used by, by co-working spaces. The different holes in order to connect uh, the different levels. Uh, we thought in this case you know, it was playful to, to do it in a way that people could connect without really having just a big hole, but like a net where you can almost float above, uh, above other people. And uh, <clears throat> it is also the, the historical part that has been done in following the same principles, you know, reopening the staircase back to the sky and to connect <clears throat> the different floors, uh, and also something interesting. I think it's very important in, uh, in today, in, you know, when you create a, a place for human interaction, which is art, uh, and because art is also a way to start a conversation. So that's something we, we did with uh, Olafur Eliasson. Uh, some of you might recall by Olafur the big installation in Tate Modern, the big sun in Tate Modern here in London, and, uh, <clears throat> and here the idea was actually, the principle was how can you allow visibility, connection between one side and the other side, so people could see light and movement on the other side, but without allowing direct lines of sight because of privacy. So when you look at the wall, uh, you know, the wall becomes like a kaleidoscopic wall where you can see from one side to the other side, but we had, without being able to read, for instance, what is on the computer screen on the, on the other side. And a lot of other art pieces through, through the building, again, is, is a way to, to, to help with what is, I believe, the only remaining reason to go to an office. You know, most of the things we are doing every day for most of us, I guess we can do anywhere we want the Starbucks, on a plane, at home. But actually, the reason is really human interaction and creating new, generating new ideas together, and art can play a big role in, uh, in that. All right, well, uh, so that <clears throat> about um, office, office, space, office spaces and, and how we work. But uh, another thing I want to share with you is another key component of a city. If you think about the city, retail is a vital component. And you know, think about just going outside <clears throat> here in, to Piccadilly. You know, that's really the richness of the urban fabric and what draws us also to cities. If you, if you read Christoller or Lush, you know, the city is really a, a place, a central place, to bring us together around goods. And as you know, a lot of this is being challenged today. It's being challenged because of digitization. Um, that's a recent uh, report, but there's many of them. You know, up to 20 per 
25% of US shopping malls may close in the next five years. Well, 25% is a huge amount of land. If you're looking at the United States and huge shopping malls, you know, that's, uh, that's huge. And then we also know what happened in, in recent months, you know, with Amazon buying Whole Foods. And if you had asked me like a year ago about, you know, will Whole Foods exist in a year or five years, I would have said, sure, you know, why not? You know, it's, it's great fun to go to Whole Foods. There's also one in London. You know, it's, uh, it's a great experience. But then, you know, last year I started using Instacart and basically somebody shopping for you and taking, taking uh, what you're, you, you, you buy home uh, for the more or less the same price. Uh, if, there's, if you're missing something in the supermarket, it will text you and say, you know, the yogurt, the strawberry yogurt is not there. Would you like, you know, blueberry? And, um, and then, you know, I, I realized I go to Whole Foods like 10% of the time versus what I used to do. So how is this going to change? And, uh, you know, I, I have no answer, but I wanted to share with you a few projects we've been doing in this space. And the first project <clears throat> is something we did at the World Expo in Milan. Uh, World Expo in Milan was a couple of years ago, 2015. The topic, the theme of the expo was feeding the planet. Uh, so it was about food, about producing food, about transforming food, about selling food and, and eating food. And uh, so we, we were fortunate enough to do two pavilions at the World Expo. And one of the two was called the Future Food District, which was this. Um, I need to tell you the box was not our design, so no responsibility for the shoebox. Uh, the shoebox was given to us, but we could do anything we wanted inside. So we could turn it inside and outside, we could do anything we wanted. And we knew what we did not want to do. We didn't want to do this. Um, There's a beautiful picture by Andreas Gursky, but you know, it's an alienating picture of the supermarket of the, the 20th century. Our idea, our inspiration was this, a quote by Italo Calvino, the, the Italian writer. Some of you might know Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino, but there's another book he wrote. It's, it's about a character called Mr. Palomar. And Mr. Palomar is this character who's a little bit provincial, a little bit aloof, and one day Mr. Palomar goes to Paris. Goes to Paris and enters a fromagerie, a cheese shop. And little by little starts thinking about all the stories behind products. And little by little, the fromagerie became like a museum or Calvino says, like the Louvre. So the shop is a museum. Mr. Palomar visiting it feels as he does in the Louvre. Behind every displayed object, the presence of the civilization that has given it form, it takes form from it. So, and of course, you know, that's not a new question. Many people have tried to, to tell stories behind, behind products. For instance, this is Tesco in, uh, you know very well, Tesco originating in this country, but it's active globally. This was in Seoul. Actually, if you look carefully, that was in the subway. See people entering the train. And the idea was, you know, you take a phone, you scan a product, then you learn about the product and you can buy it. But if you look at this, it was probably the right question, but I'm not sure it was the right answer. If you look at this, it's quite alienating. Yourself in front of a screen, and then another screen on the back and no, no human interaction there. Um, our idea was, you know, can we do something else? And by the way, it's not surprised that this was in Seoul for, I think, six months or 12 months and then was, uh, was removed. Our idea was, you know, can we use technology to do something different like this? If you look at that, a traditional market, look at the, the richness of interaction between people and products, or people and people through products. So the way we try to do it is uh, by putting everything on tables. And, you know, as humans, again, we've been using tables for thousands of years to eat together, to share things, to sell things. So everything on the table, on the top of the table, we put a lot of sensors, uh, Kinect sensors. For those of you who have the, the Xbox by Microsoft, are familiar with it, it does like a simplified three-dimensional scan of the, of the body. So it knows if you're approaching a, a product. And the idea was if you're approaching an apple, you can buy it in one second. But if you are curious about it, you can learn a bit, if you've got four seconds, you can learn a bit more about it. 
And maybe if you got 15 seconds, you can even see like a video of the orchard from where the apple is, uh, is coming. So uh, <clears throat> this is the supermarket as we, we designed it. We like the idea of it being a little bit like a theater. So you see all the different levels and uh, you can see all the products in one go. And then on top of the products, you have the different layers of information, information about that product. But there's something interesting about information a little bit similar to Newton's law. If you actually give information to people, you also collect information from people. And here at the top, you see the aggregated in real time popularity of different, uh, different products. So this was the, <clears throat> the built uh, uh, pavilion. It was both a pavilion and uh, in the real supermarket. You could shop over there. Uh, it ended up being one of the most visited and you know, very successful pavilion at the, the expo. Um, got a few prizes. Um, you see the different layers of information. You see people interacting with, uh, with information. You know, kids loved it because you could jump from one product to another one and see this accordion of information opening up in, uh, in front of you. You know, the most basic information, very simple, just about, you know, nutritional values or carbon footprint. But then the more you play with it, the more information you would discover about that, uh, that product. Here's a little video about the, the experience inside. So the, um, <clears throat> the idea for us was that, you know, if you look at what's going to remain in physical world, it's something where you've got an experience. If you just need to do something where, you know, you just need to buy an additional supply or something you decided before, it's much easier probably to shout it to Alexa or to Siri. You know, it will just come to your home seamlessly. But if you create an experience, that's probably what is going to, uh, to remain. And that's, a, sorry, that's, a, for instance, the first supermarket that was built using what we did at the expo. Uh, in the real world, so that is making it in different places back into the, the real world. Well, it's part also of what we are looking in, uh, in another place that's about Italy. Uh, I believe Italy hasn't, uh, hasn't arrived yet in the UK, I believe it's about to open, but uh, it's been a huge success in New York. Uh, in New York, I believe it was the second highest revenue per square foot after the Apple Store. It's incredible success, two of them, one next to Flatiron, one uh, um, next to the World Trade Center. And, and here we just uh, finished a project a few weeks ago. Um, which was about, you know, can you, for instance, bring back also farming into the supermarket? Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think that the future of cities is about urban farming everywhere. Actually, we will never be able, there's a paper we're working on at the moment, we'll never be able to, you know, to feed all of London just by farming in London. There's simply, simply not enough space, not enough energy. But at the same time, urban farming can be very interesting because it connects us with, with nature. Again, with nature, with seasons, with... Uh, uh, with all of this, something again that we've been uh, we've been doing for thousands of years, what you know, E.O. Wilson, uh, my colleague at Harvard, a great uh, great biologist, would call biophilia. Our our biophilia was brings us to to this. So I think yes, as architects, we should we should play more and more with nature in in cities. In this case, you know, bringing for instance a supermarket where people can uh, plant their own tr seeds, and then they can follow this both physically. When you're moving through this space, you also see things that were planted a few days before. So you're moving through to this, you can track it online, but also as you're moving through the, the space, you can see what people planted the day before, the week before, the month before. So as you're moving through space, it's like moving through time. And then you can follow that. You know, it's a, 
the beautiful thing you do when you're a farmer, which is you know, every day you go and look at the plant, what, you, what you planted and see how it's growing you know, when, when it's ready and, uh, and uh, ripe. And then you do the same thing, both combining digital and physical, uh, looking at different stages of, uh, of, uh, of growth. In digital, you know, getting, if you're not there every day because that's not your home, you know, that's in a supermarket, you know, also being able to follow it in, in this way. Now, I will not show it uh, uh, yet, but for instance, that um, <clears throat> we're working a lot on... Uh, on this topic of uh, nature in cities. Uh, in Milan Design Week in April, um, we'll actually de we'll do the, the opening act of Milan Design Week. It's going to be a pavilion in the main square in Milan called Piazza del Duomo. Uh, and over there, we'll do a pavilion with four seasons at the same time. We will actually have a, use no energy or basically collect the energy from the sun in order to control climate and in a sustainable way be able to have a pavilion where you'll be able to go from winter to summer, you know, from playing a snowball in the winter to suntan in the summer to spring and autumn, as a way, again, to bring nature in, in our cities and also see how we can control microclimate in a way we, we, we couldn't before. Uh, a very important thing, especially when cities all over the planet are confronted with, uh, with climate change. So that, that would be, uh, it's called Living Nature. It will open in, uh, in uh, uh, 16th of April in, uh, in Milan. But I wanted to finish with you, you know, again, going back to the question before, Yes, you know, technology is the answer, but what is the question? I think the, the question is, uh, is related to our experience of the city. <clears throat> it's related to, to how we can interact with things, with the world of the artificial, what Herbert Simon would have called the world of the artificial, in a, in a similar way to how we interact with each other or with, uh, with, the, with the natural world. And it's about, you know, bringing responsiveness in, in our cities and in the places we inhabit. And, uh, and it's really about you know, creating new experiences. So I want to finish with one project that we did in this case um, at, uh, in the city of uh, Zaragoza, uh, again for the World Expo. It was the World Expo before Milan was in Spain. <clears throat> and the topic of the World Expo, the theme of the World Expo then was water. And so one idea came, the mayor came to us and said, you know, how could we use water in a different way? Show this to all the millions of visitors going to the Expo. And, and the idea came, uh, you know, imagine you have a pipe and on that pipe, you've got many tabs, opening and closing, controlled by computer. Then you create like a living water wall, something where you can show images or text or patterns that opens up when you, when you approach it. So uh, the mayor liked the idea. So we got a commission to design the building at the entrance of the expo. It's a building we call the Digital Water Pavilion. All of the walls are made of water. No doors or windows, but when you approach it, it opens up to let you in. Also inside, you've got many walls, expanding and shrink, opening and closing, space will expand and shrink based on how many people you have. <clears throat> the roof is also covered with a thin layer of water. And then if you've got too much wind, you can lower the roof to minimize splashing. Or at the end of the day, you can actually close the building and the whole architecture disappears hopefully without anybody underneath. Uh, <clears throat> we, we got sensors for that as well. Uh, so we had fun doing the, designing the pavilion, doing the video. We didn't really think they would build it. And then what happened is like, you know, nine months before the opening, uh, Time Magazine put it in the list. Uh, it was mentioned before, you know, the, the, the best ideas of the, of the year. So they, they actually had to do it, you know, to have a rush in order to, to do it, to execute it. Uh, this was before the opening. I, I like this picture because there's, uh, you see this guy with the trolley, was, uh, you know, was going to the train station, which is next door in, in Zaragoza, but actually stopped there 
I'm pretty sure he missed the train. You know, because he couldn't understand, couldn't figure out, you know, what the hell is happening here? Because when you, when you see all the, all the flows, also it almost look like, looks like water is flowing in reverse upwards. Um, this was actually digital projections on the top of water, so the pixels made of light and pixels made of water combined. And this was myself, trying not to get wet. So testing the, all the sensors that, that open the pavilion when you, when you approach it. And um, I should tell you now what happened one night when all of the sensors stopped working. And that night we were terrified because you know, the building would keep on doing its own crazy things, like, you know, cats and holes and images and text, but without responding to people anymore. But actually that night was one of the most fun nights ever. That night thousands of kids from all over the city went to the pavilion to play a new game. Not anymore a pavilion that opens up when you approach it, but a pavilion that you need to engage like this. And you know, for us, it was an important lesson. Because you know, as architects, as planners, as engineers, as designers, we always think that we know how people will, will use the stuff we design. But then reality, especially human reality, and especially when the built environment becomes more and more responsive, you know, governed by artificial intelligence, well, then reality is, uh, is always a surprise. In this case, it was a, a good surprise. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Carlo. Uh, I think it was beautiful to, to, to see this presentation and this kind of very optimistic uh, view of, of the future that it would be like probably like build not only with mortar but also with pixels. Um, now we have uh, some time for questions from the audience. Okay, hi. Um, so we met we met in Venice. You don't remember me, but we met we met in Venice uh, in a similar talk at the Vega. Um, you remember that? <laughs> I, I do, but you want to know, sorry, but what was it in Venice? Uh, in, in, at the Vega, Pegasus. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, yeah, Vega, yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that time, it was quite a moment for internet where internet was showing the, um, how it united people. Um, and, and in your talk, you talked about how the, there was a, revol a revolution in uh, Egypt as well, you know, the, yeah. you talked about some of those things. Yeah. Um, so after all these years, I yeah. think we're seeing a moment now where it's quite opposite and uh, it's very divisive yeah. and um, very loud. <coughs> uh, so um, is, that, is that a factor, do you think, in, um, in your projects? Is that, is that something that you measure or, or you would like to measure? And is yeah. some city more divisive than others? Yeah. And how, um, how would you measure that and how would you approach they, they, because it's, it's also op <laughs> quite opposite to um, another project that you did. It talks about bridging and bonding. Yeah. So sure. Uh, I, I think you know it's a it's a great question. And, you know, I, I would say you know I di we didn't talk about this today, uh, but I think we could we could have talked just for for the past past hour just about that. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's about two things. I would say you know the first thing is about how the internet uh, is producing is it producing cohesion or is producing or is dividing us more. And I think a lot of that depends also on the algorithms we're using. It is no surprise that a lot of the fake news actually started happening. <clears throat> or, you know, that the role that was played in, in all the fake news movement is uh, when actually Facebook started also to weight much more the information that comes from your friends. 
versus the information that comes from the New York Times. So traditionally in society, we would respect some information coming from, say, you know, the Times or the Guardian, the New York Times, um, or, you know, from kind of refereed sources. And then if we start you know, actually to weigh much more local information, it's very easy that, you know, your friend says something. Maybe it's not correct, but you trust them, you know, and things will... Uh, will develop and, and become like truth. It's like you know, the little game that you do in, uh, in Italy in, in elementary school is when you, know, you say something, um, the, the teacher will tell you to say something in the ear to somebody next to you. And everybody will, will say to somebody else, trusting what they heard. And by the end, you know, it's something totally different than the information that, uh, that started. And so I think you know, we are seeing that. And so that, has, uh, uh, that is quite troubling. Um, it's, uh, it's something actually, to be honest, that was predicted by McLuhan, for instance. McLuhan, there's a nice, uh, well, McLuhan's uh, some of, you know, he wrote, about it, he wrote about everything, and, you know, you can interpret it however you want, but I think there's a very interesting part of, uh, of his writing where he says uh, that, you know, the global village is actually the village of division and people shouting and not understanding each other. So I think we're seeing a little bit of that. Um, I think, you know, as, as architects, uh, <clears throat> we, we, can, we, we have the duty to observe what is going on. We can try to respond, but our space of response is a different one. In the space where we can respond is more the city. And so here I want to tell you about some project we are doing. Again, it's not, uh, not finished. But where we are looking at a lot of cell phone data um, and looking at uh, how divided is a city. So we're looking at integration and segregation in the city. So what we are doing is uh, we took uh, Singapore and we took a number of French cities. To be honest, this came out of a, a, a question that was, uh, was posed to us by the king of Belgium, King Philip. And King Philip was very concerned last year came to <clears throat> we had a discussion, and, uh, and he was very concerned for, about the fact that, uh, you know, if you take Brussels, it's an amazing city, but he told me, he didn't know that Brussels is the city with the highest number of foreign fighters per capita, I believe, in Europe or in the whole world, I think in Europe. And, um, and uh, so his point was, you know, what could we do about that? And the first thing we started doing is, you know, look at cell phone data. But through cell phone data, you can understand two very important things about society. The first thing you can build a social network, how we communicate with our friends and how we are connected with the rest of, with the fabric of society. And the other thing you can see is also how we move in space. And you can anonymize and aggregate all of that, but you see you know, how we interact in physical space. So again, you get this interaction in physical space, interaction in digital space. And we started doing this and looking at how segregated the city is. And now it's not published yet, we are still working on that, but we are finding something very, very interesting. Two things I will mention. <clears throat> the first thing, is that in most cities we looked at, and we looked at a bunch of cities in, in Europe and uh, Singapore, in most cities you got you know, people at one end of the socioeconomic uh, spectrum, uh, the rich people are usually more segregated than the others. So you, know, you, you, you get rich and you try to go and live in an enclave somewhere in the city. And that happens in all cities. But what is very interesting is that usually um, on the other side, at the other end of the spectrum, actually people will tend to reach out and bridge out through all, you know, through all society. Actually, but in some cases, that doesn't happen. In some cities, actually, you've got a lot of segregation also at the other end, which means, you know, you've got some, you got, for instance, you know, immigrants and, uh, and other people who join the city, but don't feel part of their community anymore. And so in those, there are two very distinctive curves. In one case, you see a graph that uh, increases, and yes, increase segregation when you become richer, but in the other case, you get a V-shaped graph. And those are the cities where a lot of the, the issues happen. And, uh, and so then, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that you also see what are the places where people come together. And think, you know, if you look at that, think about a society that's very segregated, such as Brazil, uh, two different things in Rio and Sao Paulo. You know, Sao Paulo, uh, really, you know, it's a, it's a city 
where there's very little contact between different parts of the, of the population. Rio also has something that brings everybody together, the beach and the seafront, you know, brings uh, all the classes together. So um, I think you know, what you can do is really look at what parts of the city are the ones that tend to bridge uh, and to bring together uh, people from different social classes, socioeconomic backgrounds. And, uh, and so the, that's the that's first uh, interesting thing. And again, I don't have a solution, but if we understand better the phenomenon, a kind of Gini index for cities, then we can start addressing it. The other thing that to me is uh, even more worrisome is um, that when you look at that, you see that there's a vital role played in cities all over the world by the middle classes. Because the middle classes are the ones spanning on both sides to both, both ends. And, and actually when the middle class thins out, as we are seeing in the United States, this is also when the city kind of splits. You know, and the different parts of, uh, of the city, the different populations in the city don't interact, are not glued together anymore by the middle class. So I think those are just a couple of examples uh, to, to see how this actually is something where we can learn by studying the city. And hopefully, then we can also come up with solutions about more integration, about better public space, about you know, how to really bring the city closer together. First, understand the problem, and then hopefully, as, uh, as planners, architects, and so on, try to, to address it. Um, thanks for a great talk. It's really interesting. Um, going back Thank to you. your kind of work on mobility, did you, <clears throat> as a process through that research, look at ways where, in, through automation of cars or <clears throat> any other kind of transport systems, instead of replacing the same number of trips or adding more trips to the existing road capacity, that you yeah. reduce the amount of road and maintain the same amount of trips so you gave that space back to the public realm? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And... Um, you know, there's a couple of things. The first one is we said, you know, we might be able to get a lot of space in cities by reducing parking. As we were saying before, you know, a car is parked 95% of the time. If you remove that, you actually you can use parking spaces for other things. And there's beautiful examples what you see started in San Francisco, something called Parking Day, where the population can think about parking and transform it into something else. Now, Parking Day happens all over the world. So then you can imagine taking back that infrastructure and giving it back to the city in different, uh, in different ways. Um, <clears throat> just to give you a sense, if you take all the parking spaces in the United States altogether, the, the surface is similar to the island of Puerto Rico, which is quite huge. So you know, the, all the space is a huge space, amount of space we can free in our cities. So certainly we can do that. At the same time, uh, I think you know, every technology can lead us in different ways. And again, it goes back to the initial question that was posed. You know, what is uh, technology could be a solution, but what is the question, which is where do we want to go? And I'll tell you two scenarios where with self-driving, we can end up in totally different places. So one, one, one possibility, um, we did some of the papers, that you find them on our website, that you know, are the ones that now many management consulting firms are using to say, you know, well, you know, in a self-driving city, we could run London with 20% of the vehicles we have today. That's right. Yes, theoretically, we could run London, New York, Milan with just a fraction of the vehicles we have today. At the same time, I'll give you another scenario, which is the following. Today in the United States, an Uber, the cost of an Uber is something between $2 and $2.2 per mile. $2.2 per mile. Um, <clears throat> now, if you move to an autonomous Uber, which is much cheaper because you don't need to pay the driver, it can work 24-7 and so on, according to estimate, the cost per mile can go down to anything between 20 to 60 cents that different people have done different, different studies. Well, if that is going to happen, it's going to be much cheaper than the underground. So if that is going to happen, I think everybody in London will say, will say well, I'm not going to take the, the underground anymore. I'm just going to want my personalized mobility from my home to, to my office or, or whatever. But if that were going to happen in, in London, in Paris, in New York, you know, the city, you know, 
would be a, a, just a, a, a huge traffic jam. You know, we wouldn't be able to, to, to survive in that condition because mass transportation actually plays a vital role because of the capacity it has in, in the city. So this is just to give you two different scenarios of you know, how the same technology can lead to a city where we run London with 20% of the cars we have today, or another scenario where actually London is, is more jammed than what it is today. And the difference between those two scenarios will depend on the decisions we make together. So I think it's very important. What we see is, a, what we try to do in, in the work we do is try to look at science to look at design questions. So there's a very important design question. And by the way, I, we, we'll talk maybe in a moment the next week about you know, what, what is our definition of design. We, we can maybe have a bit of conversation about that. But, but I think you know, then the question is, you know, how can we look at the scenarios and then make sure that together, as citizens, we can decide which way to go? And so a lot of that will depend on the decisions that will be made by politicians about taxation for cars, for using the roads, and so on. But the same technologies could take us in two opposite directions. And you know, that's just one example out of, uh, out of many. Hello, thanks for the talk. Uh, I Thank have you. a question about, like, do you believe in a city could be designed? I mean, like, like <clears throat> urban planning, like I, okay. I think I appreciate the ideas like the city could be designed for better urban experience, but could a city be cre like created just like from a design concept and then drive people there, or it should be the design following people's flows? I, I like your question. Before that, before I answer it, then I have a question for all of you. What is your definition of design? We'll start with you. What is your definition of design? I think it's being creative and make something different than before or something I like new. It. I like that. Any, any other idea? Any other thoughts about, about design? I'm trying to imagine how people will, I mean, at least in an architectural space, designing an architectural space, trying to imagine how people will want to interact in that space and therefore trying to imagine how the space accompanying this interaction. Interesting. But, but, and you think people should be in design or you could have design without people? I guess it depends what you're designing. That's Any other idea? Any other thoughts? Yes. Solution and strategy. Solutions and strategy. Interesting. Any other thoughts about design? It's our way of participating in the evolution. Our way in participating, to participate in the evolution. And I, I, I would actually <clears throat> start from the last question. I, I personally, I know we can discuss it, we could debate it, we could talk just about that, but I, I like the last <clears throat> comment. I don't think uh, design is really s solving a, a problem. If you think about the internet, probably the most amazing thing we created in the past century, well, it was not addressing an issue. It was actually something, it was more like a dream of connecting computers and, and allowing flows of information than nobody could expect all the things we did with that, you know, about communicating, about email, about, you know, Amazon, about shopping, about meeting, about mating, all, all the things that came out of that. And, uh, and I think, you know, I like the evolutionary uh, uh, metaphor. Uh, my definition of design would be the one that was given by Herbert Simon. I mentioned before, Herbert Simon won the Nobel Prize in the past century, was a great researcher and uh, economist and sociologist. And, um, and you know, in, in his book, The Science of the Artificial, he says, um, um, science, the sciences look at how the world is. But actually, design looks at how the world could be. So it looks at you know, the potential, how we can transform it. And I think that's something very connected with our evolutionary uh, our evolution, you know, in the, in, in, the way, in the same ways natural evolution is transforming us, we try to transform, we try to project this out uh, in the outside environment. Instead of, uh, you know, instead of, um, um, you know, growing uh, a longer fur on our body, we can at one point start, you know, making clothes. 
in designing new clothes and adjust to the environment. So, so I, that's the definition I would use of, uh, of design. And so going back to your question, uh, I think one can answer your question in different levels, but you know, can a city be designed? And um, uh, I think what we can do, or what we should do, is not design a city by giving a solution. That's not what natural evolution does. We cannot, if you look at all the cities that were designed in that way, think about Chandigarh by Le Corbusier, think about uh, uh, Brasilia by Oscar Niemeyer and Lucio Costa. If you look at all of that, you know, most of them designed from the top down actually were big failures. And it took decades for them to actually start to adjust to life inside. But I think what we can do as designers is probably uh, try out different things and help you know, multiply. It's almost like, you know, I, I think if you use the, the analogy with natural evolution, I think as designers we can be like mutagens. We can help create mutations. And then you know, let some of those mutations run, and let those mutations be adapted. What we try to do at the lab at MIT is try to explore different mutations, like the one you saw before about sharing trips. And then you know, some of them can become startups, some of them can be adapted, some of them will be failure for sure. But it's the same thing, it's good if some of them are failure. Sometimes, actually, you also want to do mutations that are a bit scary. When we did the project at the, at the Venice Biennale in 2006, and we started, you know, for, as, I was, as I mentioned before, it was the first time ever that we, we looked at the city of, a city of millions of people, you know, looking at all the cell phone data. We thought that was also scary, uh, you know, because that also showed what's happening today, that basically, since you, all of you woke up this morning with your smartphone in your pocket, you've left a few thousand of data points in some server in the cloud in Cupertino or in Mountain View or in other places on the planet. But I think we thought it was important. Sometimes you, you want also to look at bad mutation in order to create antibodies. So I think our role as architects designers is almost to explore the world of the artificial and help transform it and generate mutations, but then let them move on and, uh, and be selected by, by people, by citizens. So going back to your point, I don't think we can build a city top down and say, you know, we're going to do a new Chandigarh and plan every detail all the way from the city to the spoon, and then you know, give it, hand it over to people. What we can do, what we should do, I think, is something different, is try out different things so that then together, we can decide where, where to go. Um, hello, um, thank you for that. Um, I, I was just thinking, we've touched on quite a few topics and I feel like in the end it boils down to sort of the society that we're building around data. Yeah. And you said something <coughs> like um, when you're collecting data, you're also giving some of it back um, to the system. So it kind of works like currency, right? Do you feel in the future we'll be talking about society which is divided between those data wealthy and data deprived? Um, <clears throat> well, I think what you're talking about is not a future society, it's unfortunately the society we're living in today. Because you know, if you think about this, you know, about all of us, uh, we, there's a few companies and big states who know everything about our lives. And as I say, you know, <clears throat> the Facebooks or whoever is running, whoever is running the operating system for your phone, know everything you've been doing today, as I was mentioning before, you know, knows, knows if you've been biking, if you've been moving by car, where you've gone. You know, when, when you look at it, when you go on Google and you Google like a shop next door, it tells you, you know, what is the amount of people you have at that time in the shop and exactly in real time, if there's more people, less people. That's because, you know, it knows about everybody yeah. uh, going through that, uh, that door. And, uh, and so I think that's society we have today. And to me, that's a problem. It's a problem because even from an evolutionary point of view, it's a problem because we are not competing on the intelligence, but we are competing on monopolies. So, you know, whoever has access to more data, you know, is trying to get their hands on more data, then um, has more power. It makes more money. It is no surprise that some of the 
that the companies managing data have these exorbitant valuations. But that's to me, is like a monopoly, it's just stealing the data out of others who don't think about it and just will say, okay, I'll give you all my data and uh, you give me something, whatever, an email address and I give you, or an operating system and I give you all my data. So I think that a much more fair society is a society um, where it doesn't happen <clears throat> and um, is a society where there's much more symmetry in, uh, in data. And uh, so I think that's something we should all uh, be very careful about, a society where competition is not on only data, but is on the intelligence to make use of data. This would be also, from an evolutionary point of view, a much better society. So, and, you know, the example I showed about the, the taxes in New York was an example, you know, when Mike Bloomberg decided to make the database public and many people did things with it and, and discovered things. Same thing happened in London with TFL data, Transport for London, and, and you know, how people, many people uh, started getting a lot of value for society out of, out of that. So how do we solve it? I don't know. I think, you know, because, you know, there's many, there's many open points. Personally, I even think the society, a more fair society, better than what you have today, would be a society where everything is public to everybody else. As humans, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, if you read some anthropology text, textbooks, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, apparently there was no privacy. Privacy, so you know, everything was shared within the group. So I think for me, it would even be better that condition where everybody knows everything about everybody else than what we have today, which is these big monopolies that make money out of everybody else's. But data. how do you think? Because one thing is having uh, private companies and private players like Facebook and Google and all these guys yeah. taking care of our data, or us being willing mm -hmm. to give yeah. it to them. And one other thing is a public body such as like London, Paris, or any other kind of government. How do you think? governments and public bodies should shift their agenda to include this debate. If I am a citizen of London and I do not wish to share my data with London, yeah. how can, oh, what should London Well, you know, unfortunately the things are, I've gotten, so maybe 10 years ago we'd have a different conversation and you know, the data you might want to share were quite sparse. So it was a different thing. But today, if you wanted to share the data, you know, if you were ready to share the data from your phone, you would share, you know, really every minute of your life everything you're doing. So today the data is, is much more problematic because it really knows everything, every website you've browsed, every people you called, where you've been, all the things you've done every second of your life, that's, that's recorded somewhere on the cloud. And um, uh, again, you know, this is not a technological question about technology. There's many technologies can take care of this, but I think we should all be part of this conversation. At MIT, in order to, to help with the conversation, we organized twice a forum uh, called Engaging Data, we had the Obama administration, privacy advocates, uh, Ed Snowden's lawyer. Last time we had Noam Chomsky, many others, in order to talk about this. Because, you know, there's many solutions looking for, but the society we're going to build tomorrow depends on the choices we make today. And we should better all be part of, uh, of this conversation. Uh, in terms of um, retail um, future, you, you, you told me the article of the US, US physical, space, physical retail yeah. space would be reduced. But the thing, um, Amazon bought um, Whole Foods is like um, online platform um, takes more important role um, to the physical space. So do you really think the physical space would be reduced or, <coughs> or, or it is just changing of the... Yeah. <clears throat> well, again, you know, I think that there's two, two parts. If, if you look at the more the, the principles behind, I think that all those things that you can commoditize, you know, if you need to buy, <clears throat> to buy whatever, uh, toilet paper or, uh, or something else, you know, I'm sure that tomorrow you will just shout to Alexa and say, replenish whatever it is and you will get it to, to your home. That's so much easier, you know, and, and, uh, and it's already happening. But at the same time, I think, you know, what will remain is the experience. 
It's the same reason why we're all here tonight. You know, it's, it's fun to be together and to exchange ideas and so on. So if you can create a place for shopping that brings that excitement uh, to people, then your debt will certainly, that is certainly going to last over time. And, um, and in particular, you know, I think, again, it will depend, a lot of it will depend on decisions that mayors will make. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was with uh, the vice mayor of Paris, of Paris uh, in charge of, uh, of planning. And, you know, his concern is, you know, think about how the urban fabric of a big city, such as Paris or London, could be destroyed if everything were to go on to Amazon. You know, all the shops and so on are, are a vital part of, uh, of the urban experience. And so some of the decisions, some of the regulations that will be put in place will also help us to decide which kind of future we're going to, to have. So yes, you could have a future where, you know, just everything comes to your home, everything is Amazon, and everything else dies all throughout the city. Every other shop dies. But I think it's up to us to see how we can do something else. And maybe actually you still buy it online, but you collect it at the shop next to home. Or maybe you know, the shop next to home has such an amazing experience that you don't want just to shout to Alexa. You really want to go there to, to get an amazing bottle of wine or, or that amazing cheese, uh, like in Calvino's story. Yes. Hi. Hello. Um, thank you very much for the lecture. Um, I I just want to go back to your question of what is design. Um, and to me, the way I see it is how we design is how we understand cities. And actually, that, that statement is not mine. In reality, that's um, a, by a professor called Bill Hillier, who is a pioneer in a sort of a theory called space syntax. So it's relating very much resonates to what you are speaking about society in space. But a little bit going <laughs> beyond that point, um, at the moment, I find myself actually designing a, a new city uh, in the practice I work with. And it's quite scary at the same time because you start thinking about all this on how would people actually experience this new city and all of these relevant topics that you just discussed of you know, office, working, living, uh, playing, moving. Um, and you also talk about how we could use data in order, you know, mm. to understand how our future will be and to understand what is currently at the moment and therefore designing a better future, let's put it that way. Yeah. So I guess my question is, how would you start, let's say, to designing a city, yeah. put it very broadly, and let's just say that yeah. there is no data available, yeah. <laughs> uh, at least in the in, in the area that I'm working at the moment. So it's quite difficult sometimes to use that. Yeah. But um, anyway, let, let, let me let me tell you. Let, let me answer the two things. First of all, let me tell you that um, agreeing with Bill here doesn't come naturally to me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, that's, uh, no, I, I have respect with Bill, for Bill Hillier, who's a professor here at UCL. But when I was still a student at Cambridge, I did a paper, you can find it online. I, I know it, yes. It's about why space, space syntax doesn't work. And so there, was, there, were, a, there were a few back and forth between on, on, a, on a environment and planning B, which is a, a journal in planning, uh, about you know, my article. And then he responded, saying it works. And I responded, saying, no, it doesn't work. And so, so anyway, that was, uh, that was the first time I got to know Bill Hillier, who otherwise is an amazing guy. So, so anyway, um, but, uh, but uh, I'm, I need to tell you, I, I agree with him uh, this time. And uh, you know, it's about, you know, in order to, to design, you need to understand something first, even if still 
I wouldn't go down the deterministic path. The deterministic is that you understand it, so there's only one solution for design. No, I think still the evolutionary metaphor is the important one. You can understand something, but there's many outcomes. And what we can do as designers is not to say in a prescriptive way, like Le Corbusier did, this is the solution, is more about, you know, these are multiple solutions, and together we can decide where to go. There's never just one solution, there's always a multiplicity, and we can be like mutagens, as we were saying before. Um, going back to your point, um, I think I'll, tell, I'll just focus on one thing. I, I'm <clears throat> There's a beautiful catalog of a very old exhibition that happened at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, I think 1971 or 73. Um, and that exhibition uh, was called Architecture Without Architects. And what it did, it actually looked at all the amazing places, the places where we still all go and look. You know, think about Santorini, think about San Gimignano, think about Florence, you know, uh, think about Cambridge. These amazing places, not most of them not built by architects, but with this thing that still draws millions of tourists to, 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 to enjoy them. You know, and, and he compared that with actually what happened in the 20th century, you know, the, in, in a lot of the squalor that we have in our, in our suburbs in cities. And then the question is, well, what changed? And if you look at, uh, you know, I think Rudolski, who wrote the book, and a few other people, have hinted at different things, but I will highlight two of them. <clears throat> the first one is certainly technology is multiplying all the possibilities. So if you were in San Gimignano a few hundred years ago, you could only use local stone, and with local stone and, you know, and, and um, trusses made of wood, you could only span a certain distance, so you would automatically generate some consistency and coherence in what you would build. You know, technology would be a constraint that would would give this kind of consistency to, to the whole thing. But the other important thing, it goes back to the evolutionary point, is um, that in the past you would do a little house and your neighbor would look at that and maybe 50 years later, you know, we'll build another little home next to yours that would be similar but with some variations, some mutations. And then somebody else would do something else with some mutation. And through this process, you would keep on doing things that would create feedback loops between what we do today and what we do at time t plus one or a year later or 10 years later or 50 years later. So the process was so slow, they could actually look at the whole thing before you build a new piece. And actually that breaks down or that broke down in the 20th century. We had to build cities very, very fast and you do everything like a whole neighborhood, a whole city, as you're saying in one go. And, and when you do that, then you, you kill all of this um, feedback loop, which is the same feed feedback loop that nature uses when it's, uh, you know, it's in, in natural evolution. You try something, you improve it, you modify, you try something else, you go backwards, and then you, you, you fix it. And um, I think you know, one of the things we can do today is um, uh, use the digital platform in order to bring back some of that uh, feedback loop in the design process. So if we do it right, we can engage citizens and use simulation on a digital platform to do a little bit of what used to happen in architecture without architects. So my, my suggestion would be if you are, well, where is the city you're building in, uh, in the Middle East? Kuwait. Kuwait, yeah. No, I, I, no, no, there's many city, new cities being built in, uh, in Saudi today, in Kuwait and so on. Uh, one of the largest ones is by the new crown prince in Saudi. It's, it's called Neom. It's, uh, it's supposed to be like Yeah, a, that one too, yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're doing all the cities. Well, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so the, um, the, the, the thing is, you know, I think with digital platform, we can probably reenact some of the feedback loops that we killed in the 20th century just because accelerating the process of city making. But, uh, but I think you know, trying to have a finalized view and just impose it uh, as we saw in the 20th century is not going to work. Thank you very much. Yeah. Three more hands.
We do, uh, do we have time? Yeah, I think we have. Maybe let, let's combine the three, the three questions. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was just going to make a comment, um, just trying to link whatever, what you were saying in your answer in terms of feedback loops, etc. I've got a, an engineer's training, electrical engineer, engineering, but lately <coughs> working in planning and movement of people, I've come to the realization that a lot of it is about local knowledge and grandma wisdom like I like to call it, yeah. and it's this kind of wisdom that's encapt encapsulated in, I think, I'm just saying instead of, like, feedback sounds like su such a dry term, and it's almost like, yeah, we, you know. You're right, data. you're right, feedback can be dry, but if you look at some of the, some of the, you know, cybernetics, you know, Cedric Price, it was mentioned before, was one of the followers of cybernetics, and, you know, uh, Gordon Pask is the guy who popularized cybernetics for, for architects. Cybernetics is really much more how we interact with, uh, well, it's about machines, but how we interact with each other. And so that feedback is, you know, when we see each other, it's feedback. I, I look at you, collect information from you, you're smiling now, I respond to that in real time, and, uh, and vice versa. So I think that feedback is a beautiful principle, I think, of most dynamic system and most living systems. So I think that's what we do every day. So I think feedback it can be very poetic. I wouldn't say it's dry. Okay, anyway, but I had two more hands. What is the primary focus of, <coughs> of the whole uh, lab? I'm asking this because um, you've talked about the, um, the mobility projects yeah. with which <laughs> they save time and energy, let's say. Yeah. And, um, but at the same time, you have some installations in retail that they spend more energy because you have all these panels giving back information. So I'm not sure if it's uh, a matter of creating a new experience for people or if it's a matter of being more environmentally pr uh, friendly. Sure. So I'm, I'm asking just for your personal, because you've done many. Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. I'll, uh, I'll maybe let's, let's listen to the, la the last one and then I'll, I'll respond to both of them. Hello, and thanks, thanks for the talk. Um, so you talked about technology and how um, helpful it is in your research and also in solving problems of the modern city. Um, I want to ask if, if you think that technology will dictate, dictate how cities and spaces are built in the future, or we will still be able to put our personal touch. <clears throat> well, we're getting philosophical now. So the, the, that's, so the first one, what motivates us, I think, well, we try to have sustainability in all of our projects. I think you know, it's vital <clears throat> that, I think climate change is probably one of the biggest challenges we face today as humanity. So that, we, we, you cannot escape it. That has to be in all the projects. And I, I think, you know, but you need to think, when you think about energy consumption or sustainability, you don't need to look just at uh, the local system, but the global one. So for instance, in, in the case of, um, <clears throat> you know, some, in some cases, there's a question mark, but if you look at the, the offices I showed in Torino, then there you need a bit more energy because of, in order to run the servers uh, for controlling people's occupancy, but you can get many times that energy back just by shutting down the building when nobody's there, by being more responsive. So yes, you have a bit more computing power, but you save probably 10 times that in the power inside the building. And the same thing with the supermarket. Um, <clears throat> yes, you have a bit of energy with the screens, and the, the expo, again, we had very, just six months to do the whole thing. If you had more time, probably would have used something like e-ink that you know, uses less energy. But again, that energy is not a match if you compare it with the information you give to people, which is about, for instance, how many kilometers the thing traveled. You know, that information you usually don't have in a supermarket. So maybe next time you decide instead of buying uh, you know, something that comes from 10,000 miles away, you buy something which is locally produced. So I think that, again, has an impact then, you know, that, that uh, can offset 
many times uh, the, the, the cost of those screens or the energy cost of those screens. So I think, you know, what I want to say, I think we want to look at ourselves, again, looking at design in a mutagenic way and trying new things, but I think that uh, sustainability has always to be there in, in the project. But never look at sustainability just in the small circle, try to look at the, the broader impact. And again, you know, in some cases you don't know, but you try it and then you can measure it. Again, in, in, in many of the projects we try to do follow-up studies in order to see is it really working or, or it is not. Uh, what was the second one? Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, if you think that, uh, I just arrived from the US. Yes. Yeah, mainly designing factor. Yes. Sorry about that. Um, so, um, well, uh, I think it's a broader topic, a broader discussion about technology, and um, <clears throat> I think in the next few decades we should be fine. And it's also about, you know, it's not only about that, but it's actually how technology is going to change society and kill many of the jobs we, we have today. And you know, if you think about, uh, I actually have two great colleagues at, at MIT who around 10 years ago wrote a paper, 10 years ago, just not a long time ago, less than 10 years ago, I believe, <clears throat> in which in this paper they were looking at what are the jobs that will not be destroyed by technology. And um, among the jobs, uh, there are two very, well, very respected economists, among the jobs they say will not be destroyed by technology, they listed truck drivers. Now, you know today that actually truck drivers, as well as all the other drivers, are probably going to disappear within five to 10 years. And this shows you how fast things have changed. 10 years ago, people could not imagine we would have self-driving cars. Now, everybody expects within five to 10 years that you know, there's around 20 million people or more uh, making a living through driving across the planet, and most of those people will be, will be without a job. Having said that, I think in the next few decades, we'll see being a good place he provided you know, with some caveat, and the place is, you know, what <clears throat> Louis Manfork was a, uh, wrote amazing books about cities, but also about technology. One is called uh, Techniques and Civilization in the first half of the 20th century. He was saying, well, you know, machines, we outsource to machine some of the things we like, we don't like too much, and we can focus on the things we like more. That was what's happened over the past few centuries. The first industrial revolution, we outsource to machines something that machines could do better, but then we would keep a lot of other things that you know, we could do better. So there was always this kind of trade-off. So in the next few decades, it's going to be okay. In technology, we're going to be able to control technology. Your question was about the control of technology and so on. Um, provided we two things, we do two things right. One is about redistribution. So if you're going to replace every driver on the planet with a self-driving car, is, who's going to benefit? Is it going to be uh, just the people who deploy the technology, who put the capital? Or is it going to be some of the, is going to go to the drivers, to the people who, who've lost their jobs? And the second thing that's very important is uh, the transition. So, you know, you can still think about a future that's great, but how do, you, how do you get there? And in the meanwhile, you know, if you've done some job for 40 years, and then, you know, the job evaporates, then, you know, how can you retrain people? How can you do education so that, you know, for people who, who might have lost their job? So I think if we, if we are careful about the transition, and redistribution, then I think the next few decades could be, could be exciting. I mean, we're going to offset to machines a lot of things we, we don't like, and then we can focus on things we like more. Incidentally, if you're interested, out of, you know, we mentioned a lot from Cedric Price onward, many of the radicals of the past century. That includes a, 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 a number of um, people that collectively are referred to as the situationists, and uh, Constant was one of the situationists. He has this idea that you know, what remains is uh, uh, homoludens, just play, manet play. You know, what remains to us you know, this kind of more uh, playful existence where he says, you know, you don't, we don't need to have artists anymore because each of us 
will be an artist in the, in the practice of, uh, of his everyday life. He was thinking about the world of total automation like this. So this is going to happen in the next few decades. So I think in the next few decades, we got a chance to master technology and, um, and everything will be good. Uh, after that, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is that nobody knows what happens at a time when machines can do every single thing better than we do. And that's going to happen soon. They're going to be smarter, they're going to be stronger, you know, robotics, artificial intelligence. So what happens when, you know, in the past, machine would do something, then we would do something else. But what happens when, when machine can do everything better than, uh, than, uh, than us? And, um, and there we need to, to be creative. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, you can think that, uh, sure, you know, we'll, uh, robots will pay taxes like Bill Gates proposed and, you know, we all go on holidays or you know, to the beach and they will take care of everything else. Or you can think like somebody I have a lot of respect for who's uh, Lord Rees, Martin Rees, a professor at Cambridge who was uh, teaching when I, when I was studying there and recently he did an op-ed in the, in the Financial Times, I believe, kind of a couple of years ago, where his point is that, you know, you got two types of intelligence. Ultimately, you know, our beautiful um, kind of uh, our beautiful um, epics uh, is uh, about humanity, and the world is about you know different forms of intelligence that keep on evolving. In his point is that you know you got artificial intelligence and organic intelligence. In his point was that you know there's no doubt that, uh, artificial intelligence or what he calls electromechanical intelligence is much superior. It is much superior because of different reasons. One reason you can ship it to outer space. It's much more difficult to ship ourselves to outer space. And um, the other reason that's amazing is that, you know, one of the tragedies of life is that every generation has to make the same mistakes. You can read in books about that. You know, each, each of us, you, know, you can read in books, you can know all of it, but until when you've made a mistake, you haven't learned. The amazing thing about a self-driving car is that you got 10 million self-driving cars. One of them makes mistakes, and all of the others learn in the same ways as they had made the mistake. So it's going to be much faster as the process. You know, the, 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 the tragedy, you keep on making the same mistake, and we need to, to learn. Every generation has to learn the same thing before you can actually make a contribution to, to advanced knowledge or something else. So his point was, uh, you know, well, because it's so much superior, then, you know, they got the right to take over. We can just, you know, give up. They are our progeny, and you know, let's let them take over. Um, I don't know if that would be the case, but we can rediscuss it in 20 or 30 years from now. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much, Carlo. Uh, I would like to go back, like, just as a closing note, uh, to your question about body design. Um, and I think like, uh, we have like, good and bad design, that for sure. Probably more bad design than good design. Um, but overall, like, design is an attitude, and it's, it's an attitude toward like, all these kind of like, different like, challenges that the world is presenting, this very complex world is presenting, uh, challenges that can be like, social, economical, political, or technological. And it's, a, it's, uh, it's our role as architects and designers to take like, these kind of challenges and take advantage of them. Because obviously, like, we know that technology is going to raise like, many problems about like, personal freedom, and uh, our city might be hackable, and many other questions. But it's this attitude, like the one that you have, that creates uh, with these kind of like, circumstances and factors a good design and hopefully like a better world and a, and a better society. So thank you very much for sharing again. Thank, thank you. And I, when I was listening to you, I was thinking about maybe the definition of design we could use. Uh, the thing could be is, in, is just, you know, 
encapsulate some of what we said is, you know, we could say design is a, is a state of mind. So maybe that's, uh, the thing is about you know, how we can deal with the with artificial world around ourselves and how we can constantly challenge it to, to let it transform. So maybe that's, uh, that's you know, I think you know, when I was thinking about you, I think maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's a definition we can go home with uh, tonight. Yeah, anyway, let's do thanks. it. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.